Hi, I'm David Tasca, freelance sports producer and director, and you're watching Dingo Talk. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carla Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk. My guest, David Tasca, freelance sports producer and director, has done things for ESPN, the Buffalo Sabres, the Buffalo Bison. Uh, David, thank you very much for taking time to join us. Thank you. Uh, we're going to do this the same way we do every week. I'm going to start you all the way back in uh, 1985 okay. in uh, Cheek, Yeah. Yep. Uh, at JFK High School. Yep. So when you're when you're lead, when you're in, when you're a senior in high school, is this a career path you were already on? What, what, what were you thinking going into college? And this was the goal. Yeah, I wasn't your average student. I mean, I pretty much knew from the time I was 11 years old that I wanted to really be a sports announcer. Sports announcing is what I really wanted to get into. Mm -hmm. So I did want to get into the field, but I wanted to be in front of the camera. So my nickname in high school was Howie for Howard Cosell. Um, and I was public address announcer for all of the football games, all of the basketball games and had been since my freshman year in high school, leading up to my senior year in high school. Uh, so going into the senior year in high school, I had already picked what college I wanted to go to based on internships, because I knew that internships were gonna be the way to get in the field. And I knew uh, that the grades weren't gonna matter as much as the experience. So when I was in my senior year in high school, you know, I was not only trying to announce as many games as possible, uh, but my advisor, who was the women's basketball coach, who I knew well, mm -hmm. uh, he wanted me to take electronics. So I had a little bit of background into what goes into broadcasting on the other side, uh, which was a good idea. It was a great idea. And it definitely paid off down the road. So, yeah, I, as a senior, I was fully immersed and and ready to go and i don't want to screw up your college name i should have asked when i got the pronunciation of oh so it's madai madai so madai college and while you're doing that i guess a year into that you end up at the a1 sports network so how does that all kind of come together sure so uh let's let's start with senior year in high school uh they had on a13 sports and basically it was Adelphia. Adelphia is the one that owned it. Um, they had a high school sports program they did weekly. Okay. So what they would do is they would feature two high schools a week to go to, and they would showcase some of their athletes. And it wasn't just if you were a great athlete, if you were a good student, that helped too. So when I was in my senior year in high school, they came to JFK. And I was one of the people that got interviewed because I wanted to be in the field. Mm -hmm. So uh, I already knew that one of my internships as a senior in high school was going to be at Adelphia Cable. So I had already asked them, you know, when, when I'm able to get an internship, I, I want to intern with you guys. So that happened, uh, it, it happened my sophomore year in college, first semester sophomore year, but even before that, uh, they knew that I was a very good statistician. So I had already started working as a freshman in college 
Gray 13 Sports, just freelance, mm -hmm. just doing statistics for their football games and their basketball games. So as a freshman in college, I was already technically working in the field, even though I was 18 years old. Well, and you, po you pointed out at the beginning of this that, that it's not the grades aren't important, but that the grades weren't in the industry. Nobody pulls up your transcript and goes, oh, you didn't do well in college exactly. writing. They yeah. want to know, did you get out there? Did you do? What was your hands on? How did you perform? What did you learn? And how you apply that? That, that the gist of the industry? Yeah, exactly. It, it really is. I mean, you, you have to have the degree, so you have to be smart enough to pass your classes. But really, they just want to know the experience that you have. So that's why I was making sure that I could get as much experience as humanly possible while I was in college. And I certainly did that. So, uh, you know, my freshman and sophomore years were pretty much doing stuff for Adelphi Cable, for Adelphia 13. Uh, and then I got a big break. Uh, the Buffalo Bisons, the AAA team of the, back then it was the Pittsburgh Pirates, okay? Um, they moved into a new stadium in spring of 1988. Mm -hmm. And when they moved into their new stadium in spring of 1988, they were one of the first people on the AAA level and to tell you the truth, even on the major league level, that had their own in-house television department so that you wouldn't miss the game no matter where you went in the stadium. If you were in a suite or if you just wanted to get something to eat, heck, even if you were in the bathroom, you didn't even miss the game, all right? So uh, I was their first intern okay. back in spring of 88. And that was that really kind of launched me and I'll tell you how and why. Okay. Uh, one baseball was always my passion. I always loved baseball, played it, you know, growing up all throughout little league, but really was an avid, avid watcher of baseball. Um, so when we started doing the games, uh, because I knew so much, they put me on the graphic system. So, you know, I would be able to easily handle you know, whether they were 0 for 1 with a ground out and I knew what to do, the difference between a ground out and a pop fly and how to write it and things like that. But, but as they went in, they realized that pretty much I knew more about baseball than anybody running that system did. So <laughs> my big break came at the end of the year. At the end of the year, uh, they were going up against Bills and Sabres because that first week in um, September was opening week for the Bills, and it was first uh, first exhibition games for the Sabres. So they moved me from the graphics chair to the director's chair. And when they put me in the director's chair, the light shone down from above, and I knew that's what I would be doing for the rest of my life. All my announcer dreams went out the window because I knew sitting in that chair and directing baseball, that this is what I was meant to do. And, and that was eye-opening. And, and to tell you the truth, I've directed at least two Bisons games every year since 1988. So I've maintained my relationship with the club and asked them, I said, you know, even though I might be working full-time for ESPN, I still want to do a couple of games a year. So at least a couple of games of the year, 
I get in the seat and I do a bison skin. Uh, and it brings me back to my sophomore year, the end of my sophomore year in, in college in 1988 when I got that internship. So, and, and it's funny you bring up the bison. The previ- we had a previous guest that was also a, a bison alumni. He was the announcer for a long time and then became uh, now with the Pittsburgh Pirates for 28 years, Greg Brown. Any experiences with Greg? Oh, absolutely. Love Greg. Yes, without a doubt. Uh, so we would do, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, and then we'll jump back. Um, when I got my job at Empire Sports Network, mm-hmm. uh, they were doing Buffalo Bisons games. So I started off as the assistant producer for those Bisons games. And basically, I would be in the booth working with the announcers, statistician, stage manager, and just kind of getting everything together for the broadcast. Uh, eventually I moved from assistant producer to producer and director for the broadcast. But being in the booth for those four years, I got to work with the announcers exclusively. So Greg Brown and Pete Weber are very good friends of mine. They're awesome people. They're absolutely as wonderful as you think they are (laughs) when you hear them on television. And I'm so glad that Greg, Greg's from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So for him to go back to Pittsburgh, is you know was was his dream job and he got to do it so yeah greg is wonderful he and i'm glad he had him on the show he must have been fabulous to talk to it's a it's a very long episode but when greg he the way that he tells stories it's just i didn't have the heart to be like well you know we should probably we should probably wrap this up now we'll let him go that's a good story we gotta keep rolling with that yeah i'm sure he's got more than a couple yeah um and being that, and we will get back to, to you specifically, but I, now that I know that you're a, an avid baseball fan, there was a uh, pretty controversial thing came up here in the past week. Uh, Big Poppy in, only guy in, Barry yep. Bonds not in, Clemens not in, yep. Schilling not in. Yep. Some of the other names that were on that list that I don't think have any association to the steroids, but not sure how they didn't get in. Um, what is your take on that? Is, is Barry Bonds a Hall of Famer? I, I mean... See, see, it's so tough because you can literally take the line that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were Hall of Famers before they ever started taking steroids. Mm-hmm. And they fall into a different category than Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez in the fact that they really never had to take a steroids test. They just didn't. It wasn't something that Major League Baseball pursued. Okay, so now you're going after them saying that you did this and, and it changed everything. And Major League Baseball wasn't wrong in doing that. But the problem that I have in not letting them in is that they were Hall of Famers before this even happened. And they never broke any rules. They never broke any rules, okay? David Ortiz had a positive, positive test and MLB is going back and they're spinning it and they're saying, well, it wasn't steroids. Yes, it was. It was a steroids test that he tested positive for. For five years, David Ortiz did nothing in Major League Baseball. And after that positive test, he was an incredible player. Mm -hmm. I mean, does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. But if David Ortiz is going to be in the Hall of Fame, then Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Rafael Palmeiro, who flat out lied to everybody. Yeah. 
if you're going to put one person in, you have to put them all in because you're not being consistent. Well, and if I think the let them in, you got to let them all in. But but in your case, Bonds and Clemens are completely different because they never failed a steroid test, and and they didn't have that rule or law, and they were they were all famers even before they did it. Well, and so, that's the thing. You go back to Barry Bonds' pirate career. He already had put numbers down. And in those early years in San Francisco, the numbers that went down were already – I mean, the hand-eye coordination that he had, and, and I don't know – I'm not a scientist. I don't do the steroid thing. But I don't think steroids helps your hand-eye coordination. And Barry Bonds had one of the purest swings we've ever seen. Right. And, and here's the other point to that is that – that is not going to help you in a situation where there's so much pressure on you to come through with that big hit. Okay. Mm -hmm. That didn't help David Ortiz become the clutch player that he was. I mean, he was one of the most clutch players we've ever, ever seen. And he should be in the hall of fame because of that. And he is, which is Mm -hmm. great. But bonds came through all the time and bonds never got a pitch to hit. So when he did get a pitch to hit, he had to hit it, and he did constantly, again and again and again. And I don't know what more pressure you can put on somebody than, hey, you're going to get one pitch in it back. If you miss it, you're not going to see another one. You're not going to see another one close. Right. And Clemens, being on those Yankee teams, you don't think there was pressure on him to come through after they traded David Wells, who was one of the most favorite Yankees of all time to get him there was tons of pressure on him so you still have to come through you Mm -hmm. still have to execute and those guys executed at a level that we've never seen I mean Bonds and Clements are the best pitcher and the best hitter of their generation and I'm not talking 20 years I'm talking a span of 40 years we you haven't seen anybody like them since no no and then I think the other thing to your, if you're going to let them in, if you're going to let some in, you got to let them all in for, that are, that are in that category. Bud Selig is in the hall of fame. Oh, and oh don't we, get me going on that. Well, you know yeah. what I mean? But we're turning a blind eye to the guy that turned a blind eye to save the game. He was okay with the numbers and the ratings and the money and all the sports reporters that were okay with the money and the stories and the Barry Bonds is a jerk. Cause he doesn't want to talk to us in the dugout. I sit in a spot where I don't think that the Hall of Fame should be based. I don't care what you wear outside of sports. Outside of sports, Barry Bonds probably not a great guy. He's probably not the nicest person in the world. I don't know him, so I'm not going to say that. Right. But the sports Hall of Fames, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, all of them, you're not being graded on who you were as a person. If we were doing that, Ty Cobb wouldn't be in. Babe Ruth wouldn't be in. You know, there's a list of those guys that wouldn't be in the Hall. And – to ignore the guy that if you took all of his home runs away, he still has a higher on base percentage than a lot of people that are in the hall of fame. How do you, I did, well, we'll get, yeah. we, we no, can go I, for I hours. Let's just put it this way. I completely agree with you. You have to be consistent. If you let one person in, all of them have to go in. And I'm telling you, Bagwell, <laughs> I mean, I have friends who love the Astros, but don't tell me that Bagwell never did it. Okay. And there's not with that frame. There's, there's tons of people that say Piazza did it too. That I don't know. And I won't even go down that road with Piazza because again, you know, 
we're talking about players that were so incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. Piazza almost deserves to be in that level of Bonds and Clemens. He's the greatest hitting catcher in the history of the game. Uh, you know, should he be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad he is in the Hall of Fame. I'm glad that Bagwell's in the Hall of Fame. But if you're going to let one person in, they all should be there. Mark McGuire should be there. Palmero should be there. They all should be there. I don't care if they lied. <laughs> they should be there because yeah. you've already let people in the Hall of Fame that took steroids. So once you do that, you have to open everything up. You've opened and the door. Great point on Seeley. If you let Bud Seeley in, who literally almost destroyed the game, okay, not only with steroids, with what they're going through right now. I mean, we didn't have a World Series in 1994. The whole country of Canada lost one of their teams because they couldn't settle that strike. The Montreal Expos go to the World Series in 1994. Mm-hmm. They probably faced the New York Yankees in an epic all-time World Series that would be one of the classics and we'll never, ever, ever see it. And they lost their franchise because of what happened during the strike. And the guy that couldn't settle it, the guy that couldn't couldn't do it is in the Hall of Fame. That's... The guy that let an all-star game go to a tie? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Agreed. So um, let's wrap up college. We'll take a we'll take a we'll wrap up college. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll get back into it. So in 1989, as you're getting ready to leave college, what and graduating cum laude, I believe, right? Yep. What went into the academic side? Because obviously you were really big on getting the, the experience, yep. but clearly your academics were, were, were pretty good as well. What went into the balance of that? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, in high school, I kind of coasted through. I was smart enough not really to study. And it was funny that my first, and this is, I'm glad you asked that question because for all of the freshmen, when you immerse yourself in college and that first semester in college, chances are you're not going to do great. And the reason is it's such a different atmosphere in so many different ways, but I really and truly did not know how to study. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to study that first semester of freshman class. And when my first grades came out, my first three weeks, I was failing almost every single class I was taking. I was like, what is going on? And, you know, talked to a couple of instructors and they were like, well, how do you study? And, and I realized I was doing it all wrong. So I learned how to study. And because I learned how to study, taking the courses became more fun and trying to take the test became more challenging. And I just wanted to do really well. I challenged myself. So just trying to do the best I could, but getting acclimated to that first semester and really finding out what I needed to do to excel in this was, you know, completely eye-opening. And it's funny because it's like that anytime, everywhere, you know, if you were an athlete, chances are you're not going to be very good for at least the first three or four months of your career because you're just acclimating to everything. It's just like anything else. You know, when you start a new job, you're not going to be as good as you are 
one year, two years into that job. It's the same exact thing. So uh, because I learned how to study and because you know I wanted to get good at it, that helped tremendously with the grades. And, and from there on, the internships helped as well because I excelled through the internships and that helped the grades as well. Well, so where do you, when you're first pivoting out of college, you're grad, you graduate, you're still with a 13, you're still with the, with the uh, Buffalo Bison. Yep. Where, what is that pivot? Cause yeah. So, so no, that's, that's a great question. So Avid Productions was a production house that did all of the Bison's games. So technically I got paid through Avid and I worked through Avid even though they were the Bisons, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, first thing I did out of college was I worked with them for about five or six months. Um, believe it or not, a lot of corporate stuff. I had never done anything really corporate before. So worked with them on a lot of corporate videos. Fisher Price, the toy company, is based right here in East Aurora, New York, okay? Which again is 20 minutes from Buffalo like everything else is. Uh, so did a couple of corporate videos for them realized that I wasn't going to be doing this the rest of my life, but it was a good way to get into a new side of the business, learn new things, which is always good, uh, until the next break came. So basically at that point, I was kind of waiting for a full-time position to open up at Adelphia 13. I knew it would. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, I worked with Avid for about six months, went and did another season of Bison's realizing that this time now I'll get paid to do the games instead of doing the games for free, which is always good. Yep. Um, and then as soon as I was done with Bison's, the, the first full-time position opened up at Adelphia 13. And to get you to the transition to the next part, here was the other big break. So we talked about one in being a director for the Bison's. In two, the owner of Adelphia Cable decided that we did so many sports between college sports locally and high school sports locally. He wanted to start a regional sports network. And that's where I'm going to pause you. I think that's a good place to come out for part two. Yep. I have to send it to my sponsor here in Bethany, West Virginia, Chambers General Store. If Chambers doesn't have it, you don't need it. You can get that on the back of a T-shirt. And it's pretty much the truest statement I can I, I have made. Uh, other than the Bud Selig thing, go back and listen if you didn't. But – uh, Chambers General Store, you get a breakfast sandwich, you can get biscuits and gravy, you can get daily lunch specials, uh, soups of the day, he'll make a dollar sandwich right in front of you. And if you have any maintenance that you need to perform on your house, or you need toilet paper, or you need toiletries or anything like that, he's got them. Plus, he's got every nail and screw and nut and bolt known to man and a little, you know, you pull out the drawers and you start trying to look for what you're looking for. Um, you can buy the t-shirts online. They are at the Facebook page. It's at Chambers General Store. Or if you're in Bethany, West Virginia, stop down into the store. But uh, I am Carlo Guadagnino, David Tasca, uh, freelance director and producer currently with ESPN and a couple other people. Um, this is Dingo Talk, and we will be right back. You're watching another exciting episode of Dingo Talk, recorded deep in a hidden lair in Bethany, West Virginia, where when you visit, make sure you stop by Chambers General Store. Grab one of our hot breakfast sandwiches made fresh all day. Don't forget the biscuits and gravy or one of the daily lunch specials. And if none of that trips your trigger, 
cold cut subs, sandwiches, and wraps made fresh all day to your order. Hey, and don't be the only alumni on the block that doesn't have the chambers. If you, we don't have it, you don't need it. T-shirt or the latest edition of the Bethany, West Virginia shroom capital of the world in the psychedelic green. Hey, now back to you, Carla. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carla Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk. My guest, David Tasca, freelance producer and director and currently with ESPN, amongst other people, which we are going to find out now. We left you on a bit of a cliffhanger, the second break for Mr. Tasca uh, into, in the industry. And what was that second break? So I was working full-time at Adelphi Cable 13 doing college sports, doing high school sports, and the owner decided he wanted to form a regional sports network. So in December 31st of 1990, Empire Sports Network was born, okay? And because I was doing so much stuff with Adelphia, by that time I had already not only run game camera, but mostly was directing all of our baseball coverage um, and kind of advanced a little bit higher up in producing some shows and doing things like that. I was asked to join Empire Sports Network. So I joined Empire Sports Network in a producer's role. And because I was at a regional sports network now, now I had access and opportunities to elevate. Um, so again, just like we talked about before, the first couple of years were really rough. We were putting out some events that probably weren't that good. Uh, <laughs> we didn't know exactly what we were doing. Uh, the first event that we did uh, was college football season. And we had a graphics package that we didn't really look at beforehand. And I'll take the blame. It was mostly my fault. I had set up everything for that show that we needed, but completely forgot about graphics. <laughs> so the poor, the graphics person going into it was just trying to create things for seven hours leading up to the game. And, uh, oh, what a horrible experience for her. I'm sure I bought her at least a dinner or at least that afterwards because it was just a bad experience. So our first year, our graphics just looked horrible. Um, and then we got affiliated in our second year with Prime Sports. So Prime Sports came out of Houston. Okay. And it's funny because uh, I worked with a couple of people there uh, that would send us graphics elements and a look. Well, you didn't really have a look. So now they sent us elements and we could create a look. Okay. You know, we could create effects as far as replay moves and we could create a true look so that we could look like a regional sports network should. Uh, so it's funny because I still get to associate with some of those people way back then at Prime. And, and Prime basically was kind of the precursor to Fox Sports. Okay. okay. All those Fox Sports regionals that are now Bally Sports regionals. Well, that kind of goes back to Prime. Okay. So, so that's, that's how the evolution of that came. All right. So here I am at Empire and uh, we're like three years in, four years in now. We're doing a lot of sporting events, which is great. I'm getting a ton of experience. I'm doing college basketball doing some college lacrosse um, and we're doing the pre and post game show for the Buffalo Sabres. So I'm getting to work on, you know, professional sports now, which is great. Uh, 
And a big break for Empire came in 1996 when they decided that they were going to go really kind of 12 hours a day with programming. Okay. So we had programming pretty much from morning all the way through midnight. Um, so we brought a lot more staff in, which was great because we needed it, brought in a lot of good people, and we started doing a lot of sports talk shows. And the sports talk shows just took off. And because they took off, we got a lot of notoriety, which was great. Uh, and that notoriety led us to even doing bigger events. So now we were starting to do some Syracuse basketball, which we had never done before. Now we were starting to do Syracuse football, which we had never done before. Uh, the University of Buffalo moved into the Mid-American Conference. And because they moved into the Mid-American Conference, they were facing six teams from Ohio, three teams from Michigan, teams from Illinois. Mm -hmm. So that regional sports network now had people in other states wanting to see their events. And that was break number three. So break number three came about because other cities, mm -hmm. Cleveland, Chicago, Dayton, wanted to see their local college football teams. Uh, so we would produce games on Empire and ESPN would call us and say, hey, we want to take this game and put it on the first incantation of ESPN Plus. Everybody knows what ESPN Plus is now. It's a pay service and you can get it on your phone and watch games everywhere, which is fabulous. But back then, ESPN Plus literally was a distributor. So what they did is they would distribute a local game that was produced in Buffalo and show it to like 16 other cities throughout the Midwest and Northeast. So basically it was a distributor. But the one thing that we had to do because of that is we had to take our empire look and go completely neutral. So now we got to use ESPN. So now I worked with the ESPN look. I knew all of the ESPN ways, exactly what they wanted to do with their games, how it wanted how they wanted it to look, how they wanted it to sound. So because of that, now I had an in, not at a regional sports network. No. I had in at the sports network, okay? So still was with Empire for 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, our owner got into trouble with uh, the SEC and he had to sell not only all of Adelphi Cable, but obviously the regional sports network. So in March of 2005, Empire Sports Network, after 15 years, goes away. But because of that, because of big break number three, I already had my contacts at ESPN. So I called up my contacts at ESPN and say, hey, this is what's going on. And they said, yeah, we'll give you some games. You're definitely going to start off freelance, but we're going to give you games. Mm -hmm. And um, I was already doing games for ESPN producing and directing in fall of 2004. So I had done about 12 events even before Empire went away. Yeah. Uh, so by the time Empire went away and we started that next season up in September, I was pretty much working every weekend from September through March doing football and basketball and obviously was doing a good job but here's one thing that my boss who I don't mind mentioning because he was a wonderful person he was a West Virginia native 
a Stas Hall um, did the first football game that I did for him. I had always produced for Empire. I never sat in the director's chair, mm-hmm. always produced. And it's not like I didn't know I sat next to the director, so I obviously saw what he was doing. Mm-hmm. The very first game I did for him, he puts me in the director's chair. And I didn't have the heart to say to him that I never, ever directed before. Okay. So not only that, our sideline reporter, who, who knows who she is, she's from Chicago. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. It was her first game as well. Okay. So our poor producer, Doug Tut, has a newbie in the director's chair and a newbie as a sideline reporter. So things don't go too bad for most of the first couple of drives. I get through it. But when we go down to our sideline reporter for our first hit, first time on television, she freezes. Can't say a word. And your newbie director doesn't cut off her right away. Just basically leaves the camera on her for 10 seconds that she can't say a word and then finally cuts off from her. Needless to say, the producer wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> but Here's the great thing about that story is not only did she do a great job after that, she interviewed both coaches at halftime, no problem. She did a couple hits in the fourth quarter, no problem. Mm-hmm. Well, now she works full-time for ESPN and is one of the lead women's college basketball analysts. And she's a wonderful person. But it's like I said before, when you start, you're going to make mistakes. You have to have people that are willing to let you make those mistakes because if they're willing to do that, chances are they'll get greatness out of you. And Mm -hmm. they obviously got greatness out of this person because look where she is now. So the fact that Stas, you know, didn't take me off the chair right away in my first time directing his football and kept me going in it, Mm -hmm. uh, I would probably say four out of the first five games I did for ESPN were in the director's chair. Um, it was wonderful. And, and I really ended up becoming a, a pretty darn good director. Uh, and I wouldn't have had that opportunity had he not thrown me in the chair. And that was his belief. His belief is he wanted guys who could do it all. He didn't want just somebody penciled into one spot. Mm-hmm. because we weren't that big of a group. So we needed people that could do multiple, multiple things. And because he gave me that opportunity in, in 2005 to do that, you know, that, that was, that was huge. It was huge. And, and it's the reason why I can say I'm a freelance sports producer and director. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be able to, I had directed baseball and I had directed basketball, but I had not directed football up until then. Well, so let's, for the people at home that maybe don't know sure. the difference, let's break yep. down. So what are the roles like in a, in a, in a game day situation? What yeah. are the roles of a producer? Okay. So the way I like to put it across for anybody who's a newbie to the business, pretend you're on a cruise ship, okay? Mm-hmm. The captain is the producer. The captain charts the course, okay? The captain tells you what ports you're going to go to. The captain's really in charge of everyone on the ship and making sure that you all get there safely. You have a great time. Okay. That's kind of the producer for a television show. Okay. okay. The producer for a sporting event 
is in charge of putting all the formats together. He's in charge of the content you see, when they're going to go to commercial break, what content they're going to show coming back from the commercial break. Do they do a promo here? Do they show their billboards there? What content are they going to talk about in the open? What players are they going to show you in the open? That all comes from the producer. Now, the producer is talking with the announcers, Mm -hmm. and the announcers are helping him decide that, or her decide that. Uh, But really, that all comes from the producer. And, and, And during the actual event itself, the producer is talking to the talent, reminding them when they're going to go to break, coming back from break, counting them back from break, and also deciding all the replays that you're going to see and kind of guiding, you know, when they're going to go to break, what they're going to do coming back from break. He's kind of, he's charting the course, just like the captain on a ship does. Now, the director is the actual person on a cruise boat that has his hands on the wheel, okay? So that person, their job is to make sure they don't hit the iceberg. Okay, because <laughs> you do not want to hit that iceberg. No. Right? <laughs> so it's the actual director's job to make sure that everything the producer has set the course for follows through. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the director is the visual person. The director on a television show decides what you see. They decide every single shot that you see. They work with the camera people and they make sure that in certain situations, that's what they're going to show because that's the way you need to show a sporting event to make sure that you get the correct angles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 really simple thing, but if you don't follow through and do the basics right, you know, things go wrong. You know, it's, it's as simple as this. If you're watching a football game and there's an extra point, so let's say the game is tied with two seconds left, that extra point is going to decide who wins the game. Well, if you go with that game camera angle, the viewer at home would never see it mm-hmm. because they're at the wrong angle. No, you have to go with the end zone angle. And it's just as simple as making sure that that end zone camera is shooting that. Okay. But if they don't, then your whole broadcast goes down the drain because you didn't execute a, a just shooting an extra point properly. And the viewer at home didn't see the game winning point or the point that set them in overtime. But yeah, essentially, that's what the director does. The director is the visual, and he takes all the cues from the producer and then has to execute them. So for for that specific scenario, because uh, we all we, we all know the image you're talking about, that almost every time a guy lines up to kick, it's that right to the back of the kicker, see through the goalposts, and then mm-hmm. we get that when the replay comes, then you get that reverse angle of looking – at the kicker as he puts it through in real time, that's got to be a crazy thing to be able to, for the replay guy, for the director, for the, you know, you're shooting from back here, right. We're going to show you what it does and then fall, you know, follow the ball. But then that to have that replay ready, because you get every angle. I mean, you got the the zoom on the, on the holder, you got a, a guy that's watching the center, the snap, the kicker, the step, the, the two officials that are going to do this. Yep. What is it? For, for the director, it's not just the, the cues and everything, right? Because you have to really rely on the other, the sound guy, the, the, the camera operators. Everybody has to work kind of simultaneously together. Yes. A director is only as good as the camera people that they're working with. I mean, that's the 
God's honest truth. You get a bunch of great camera people and boy, you better not screw it up as a director because they're giving you everything that you need, okay? But this is where preparation comes in. So we talked a little bit about the preparation of a producer putting the formats together and deciding what the open is. Well, the director has some preparation too, not as much as the producer does, believe me, not nearly as much, but the director has to put together his camera sheets. And basically what the camera sheets are for a sport is they lay out certain situations, which I kind of already talked about. Mm -hmm. So that situation of a point after or a field goal is a specific situation where he lists everybody's responsibility in that situation. So everybody knows exactly what they should do in that situation. So all the bases are covered. So you at home get to see all of those replays. Okay. And it's like mm-hmm. that for other things as well. It's like that for the kickoff. It's like that for an onside kick. You know, it's like that for a punts. Okay. So anything that's special has a certain delineation with what everybody's going to do. And it's on a sheet. And that the great thing about that is that they can put it directly in front of them. So let's say, you know, they just, for some reason, they space out a little bit and weren't sure exactly what to do. Well, all they need to do is look at the sheet and it will tell them exactly what they should be doing, okay? And then the other thing that I always tell my camera people, listen, there's nothing wrong with talking. If you need to ask a question, ask a question. I would rather have you ask the question than assume wrongly and get it wrong, okay? So mm-hmm. to never be afraid to ask the question, you know, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And uh, that was going to lead into that. That leads into a question because you said that there's a lot there's for the director, you know, there there's the specific scenarios, but we all know from all sports, there's always a, well, I want to get a shot of the coach. When does that, does, does that come from the director or the producer? When, when something happens and you go to those, those close-ups on the coach or, you know, as a Steeler guy, you know, that those, those shots that we got of Ben Roethlisberger and Tomlin together yep. as the game was winding down and, pe- and yep. specifically in Heinz Field against the Browns, we really yep. got to see what those interactions were like. Yeah. That's not scripted. That is you're, you're making the call or the producer's making the call yep. of, hey, this is where we need to be. We, we, we want a camera on so-and-so. Is that how that goes? Yeah, absolutely. It's all communications. It's it's funny because when things go bad in this field, it's really just a failure to communicate. And it's it's kind of sad that you're in the communications field and you don't communicate. As long as you communicate, everything goes fine. You know, if the producer says, hey, listen, after this drive, I really want shots of Roethlisberger and Tomlin. You know, just execute it. it yeah. It's as simple as that. It's just a simple ask and, and making sure that you're able to do it. And sometimes the director has to say to the producer, sure, I can get you that, but this is what you're not going to get because I have to sacrifice this camera to get you that shot. And then the producer will say, that's all right. I really need this. I'll sacrifice that replay to do it. Okay. But yes, it's communication and it's talking to each other. And a lot of times that will happen in the breaks. So the director will know coming out of that break, okay, Steelers are getting the ball. I want to see these shots before they get the ball. But reminder to you, after the drive, I still want to see those shots again. Okay. Okay. So 
I, as I was as I was doing my notes this week before this show, I, I noticed with ESPN, you're you're a producer, you're a director, and then there's another um, title that comes into play, and that's campus production coordinator. Now, okay. what is a campus production coordinator? Sure. So, um, so let's go through ESPN. Okay, mm-hmm. so we talked about how I started at ESPN. So for probably like the first seven years I was at ESPN, maybe eight, I was technically I was freelance, even though I'd pretty much work every week. Uh, technically, I was a freelance person. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason why I became full time at ESPN uh, from them until January of 2021, that's when I no longer had a full-time position in ESPN, uh, was because of this campus production program. And basically what it was is they ended up getting well over 150 schools to start doing their own productions. Okay. Okay. So a lot of universities, because they already had communications departments and because they already had kids that were applying for ESPN internships, ESPN decided to go back to the schools and ask them, would you be interested in doing campus productions? And they hired eight of us to make sure that not only would we go there and kind of like watch a campus production, but we would stay in constant contact with those schools and kind of review a couple of productions. I would go to each school at least twice a year, sometimes more, because I really wanted to be in the control room. Uh, For the same reason we talked about, I knew that they were going to make mistakes, but I could tell them exactly what mistakes they were going to make. And I could tell them how to not make those mistakes and, you know, get their production so that they would improve. And at the start, you know, the productions weren't of the best of quality, but now they're so much better. And they really do some really good work. And the schools themselves have invested a lot of money behind this. So they're getting to work with equipment that they're going to use when they're not in college, when they decide, if they decide to make that a career Mm -hmm. to pursue, a lot of the equipment that they use, they will use outside as well. So um, that was my job for, close to eight years, just overseeing a lot of school productions and making sure that, you know, they were, they were following the mandates and kind of showing them the ESPN way of doing sports production. So I would still produce and direct, uh, but that was my main responsibility as a campus production coordinator. And I did that all the way up until until January of 2021 and had a blast doing it. I loved working with all the schools I got to work with. It was really a great experience and the wonderful contacts and the people that oversee those productions, they do a really good job and uh, they still do. And that's something that I definitely miss. So my quality control guy and manager would be very upset with me if I didn't ask this question, because again, as I was doing my research, he is a diehard Tennessee Titans fan, and I see that okay. I saw that you are a, you had some experience with the Tennessee Titans. Yep. Um, so how did that come about, and what was that? What was the experience like? Because it's the preseason games for the Titans, correct? Yep. Yep. So uh, that came about through my 
college football package that I had been doing for like seven years. I was the director for our Mid-American Conference game of the week, and it would be at noon every mm-hmm. Saturday. So, um, and it was, it worked out really well because a lot of the Mid-American Conference territory kind of is the same territory as Big Ten. So it worked out very well that our game would be at noon and then the Big Ten game would usually be on at 3.30. And I'm talking about, you know, the between 2007 and like 2013, you know, not before the start of the Big Ten network, okay? So this was before the start of the Big Ten network. Yeah. Uh, my producer on that uh, was producing the Tennessee Titans games. And the person that I told you that was the producer for my first game at ESPN, Doug Todd, was his director for the games. Well, when Doug got his full-time position at ESPN, he got full-time before I did, uh, and most deservedly so, uh, ESPN gave him so much work that he wasn't able to direct the Tennessee Titans games anymore. So I had already been working with Greg Logan, my producer for college football for about three or four years. And he said, do you want to direct the Tennessee Titans NFL games? And I'm like, do I? Absolutely. (laughs) So yes. And they are a blast to do. We work with wonderful, wonderful people there. Um, It's a wonderful place to work with. Uh, They, they do a great job. Uh, Worked with fabulous people over the years there. And uh, we have a lot of fun. And I think we do a really, really good job on the shows. And, and the one thing about doing those shows, which is great, is that I get a lot more cameras to work with. So it's probably the biggest show that I get to direct each year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, sometimes I'm working with 12 camera people. So we get a lot of different things we can do. We have fun with it. Uh, and those are great shows to do. And then, so you're, you're, there's also another, uh, you went, you left empire or empire goes away, but up in that area, as you said, Buffalo, not very far, 20 minutes from everything. You, you ended up at the Niagara sports net. Now, how did that come about? Okay. So, so basically the local schools, uh, and again, this is one of the reasons why ESPN did this, um, uh, Niagara wanted to get some of their games on that ESPN wasn't showing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking, this is before ESPN started campus productions, you know, and that's another reason why they started because a lot of the schools were like, okay, this is great. I'm getting four games from ESPN on a year, but for college basketball, I've got 10 other home games. Okay. So what do you do with those 10 other home games? Well, Niagara wanted to, you know, essentially start their own little, sports network and, and try and sell some of those games to, you know, different people to pick up kind of like that ESPN plus model that I talked about before. Yeah. So got to do three, four years worth of stuff with them. Uh, we did college hockey, we did college basketball, and basically I would produce and direct, put the shows together for them and we'd send them out to air and it was a blast doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it's something that kind of went away because of what ESPN did with the campus production. So now ESPN basically was showing every single home game. 
and, mm -hmm. and that's what they do. So if you have a home game, it's going to be on at least ESPN Plus or ESPN3. And that's the difference. And then how does that, how do you end up leading into, because I'm going to, we're going to read, but we're going to come back to our Buffalo Sabres talk because sure. I feel like we, we glazed over that as if you're not yeah. still, still doing the Sabres and whatnot. Yeah, no, you're right. But you're right. CBS, you, you also do a, a freelance work for CBS as well. Yeah. So basically in 2021, I was let go at ESPN. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we knew it was coming and ESPN was nice. They gave us like four months that, you know, we got paid and, and we just knew that it was coming. So because of that, you reach out to all of your contacts and the way the, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because the way things are going in this field right now, um, the, the actual sports networks are trying to save money because of all the hits that they got during COVID. And yeah. one of the ways they do it is they work with a lot of packagers. Okay. So ESPN and CBS work with a decent amount of packagers. And, and what do I mean that? So it's, it's their own production entity that will go to CBS and says, CBS will say, I will give you X amount of money and you're going to produce the game. We'll supply the talent for you. So we'll give you the announcers, but basically you do everything else. You supply the crew, you supply the producer, the director, and you do the game for us. And we'll give you the CBS look or the ESPN look. Mm -hmm. And you need to go ahead and execute that look. And if you do a good enough job, then we'll keep giving you more games. Yeah. And basically, essentially, that's what it is. So, yes. So I have worked for CBS Sports Network since pretty much January of 2021. Uh, done probably like eight to ten games for them. Uh, great people to work with. And it was great to work with a different network. That was mm -hmm. nice. And uh, they really have good executive producers that like to stay on top of things, but they stay on top of things kind of in the same way that ESPN CPs usually did, which is, you know, if, if you make a mistake, they'll tell you exactly what you did, but they're not yelling and screaming at you saying, hey, you know, so and 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 when it comes to that, when it comes to our field and what we do inside a truck, it can be really stressful. Mm -hmm. Okay. And one of the reasons why it's stressful is in, in our situation, if you make a mistake, you have potentially millions of people that are going to see that mistake. It's not and, a mistake that five people okay. saw you're talking. Right. Right. So, you know, as somebody at home is saying like, what, why would you do that? And believe me, we're saying the same thing in the truck too. Um, so it helps to be patient and not go overboard when a mistake happens because there's never been a mistake-free broadcast. There just hasn't. Uh, your things are going to happen. They'll happen in the Super Bowl this year. They happened in the Super Bowl last year. Mm -hmm. They'll happen in the NBA championship. Uh, you don't. It, it, you're never going to have a truly mistake free broadcast something's going to happen yeah. but what i what i always tell everybody out there is that the viewer at home is only going to remember that big moment so if you nail the big moment and you get the big moment right that's the only thing people are ever going to remember yeah they don't matter the front that doesn't they don't remember the first quarter as much as they right. remember the game winning shot at exactly. the buzzer exactly exactly so going back to working with CBS and ESPN through packagers. So we try and we just do the best job that we can. And because we do that, 
we get more games from them. So it's funny that I no longer work full-time for ESPN, yet I still do a decent amount of work for technically ESPN, even mm -hmm. though I'm working for LTN, who is my packager that I'm doing most of the, most of the games through. Again, through my former boss, Stas Hall, who I'm extremely grateful for that I'm able to do that. And there's a great group of people that I work with at LTN who do a great job as far as setting you up and getting you ready so that you can produce a game or direct a game and excel and, and really do a good job at it. And same thing with Rush Media. They're the packager that I work for when I do CBS Sports. Mm -hmm. And again, they, same thing. The packagers, they know what the networks want. As long as you're being able to give them what they want, then you keep getting more games and that's, that helps everybody. It helps CBS's bottom line, it helps ESPN's bottom line, and it helps the packagers bottom line, and it helps us freelancers bottom line. So we'll, we'll come to the Buffalo Sabres because we, okay. I, I feel like, again, we glazed yeah. over the Sabres. As no. it was like, yeah, let's go full circle. Well, one and yeah. done. Well, yeah, I did thought we do the Sabres and stuff. So what has your experience been like? Because I know, as a Pittsburgh fan, and I was a very young child when Darius Kasparitis broke the hearts of millions of Buffalo Sabre fans on a shot that even I think today, if you asked Casper, he still would say, I don't think I, I don't think I scored a goal because I've never shot, basically never shot a puck from, from his position. But what is the day-to-day the -day like for the Sabres games? Okay, so uh, it's completely different. So, so to come full circle, when I was in Empire, uh, Chris Ann Bellis, who, who now works for the Buffalo Sabres. Okay, so now she's kind of like the executive in charge of broadcasting for the mm -hmm. Buffalo Sabres, and she does an excellent job. Well, back then, Chris Ann and I were producers for Empire Sports Network. So we started way back with Adelphia, and we were the two producers that were hired to work for Empire. Mm -hmm. And her main job was to produce and direct Hockey Hotline. Hockey Hotline was the pregame and postgame Buffalo Sabres show. And Hockey Hotline was ahead of its time. So it was sports talk after the game that would allow the fans to call in, give their opinion. But it was on television. Nobody had done this. Before, no, that's a radio okay? thing. That's a radio thing. That's not a television thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we would do all 80 games. I would get to produce probably about 10 to 15 of the games. But even if I wasn't producing, Chris Ann did most of the games and did a fabulous job. I would usually be out there stage managing, working with the talent. Uh, and we had great talent. Brian Blessing was the host of the show. He just literally passed away two weeks ago. So rest in peace, Brian. You're wonderful to work with. And a former Buffalo Sabre. Uh, Mike Robitaille was the analyst. And to give you a little background behind both of them, Brian was a stressful, but on television, he was as calm and cool as you could be. Mike Robitaille, before going on air, was calm and cool. So to watch a game with them, Brian would be the one yelling and screaming, and Mike would just be taking his notes on what he wanted to talk about. Once we got the show going, it was exactly the opposite. Brian would have to calm down Mike because Mike would be going off on why this power play didn't work and why that defenseman is being weak. And he would just 
he had no filter when it came to that. Mm-hmm. If he saw something you didn't like, he'd say it. Again, extremely unique, okay? Yeah. Because he wasn't being paid by the Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> so he would sometimes go after Buffalo Sabres. Mm-hmm. And Doug Gilmore, when he left Buffalo, specifically tore into both Mike and Brian about their analysis and why they said what they said. He was not happy with them whatsoever. But again, that helped to develop sports talk on television. We were Mm -hmm. doing something that wasn't done before. And the viewers could give their opinions. And Brian and Mike would just be honest with them. If they thought it was a bad opinion, they'd tell them. If they agreed with them, they'd tell them. But you could get involved with the show. Okay, so that ran all the way up for all pretty much 15 years of of Empire, okay? So Chris Ann was able to get a job with the Sabres when Empire ended, which was great, and she's been with them ever since. So the full circle to go back, and again, in our business, it's it's really your connections and who you know. Mm -hmm. So when I lost my full-time job at ESPN, I had done some stuff for the Sabres, freelance stuff. I was able to work the the first ever winter hockey classic, which was incredible. Just to be there was amazing. You know, that's one of the best sporting events, I think, ever, really. It was great because it With was- With the snow coming perfect. down and everything. I mean, it's perfect Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was wonderful. So I got to work a couple events doing freelance and stuff like that. But when I lost the full-time job at ESPN, she said, you know what? We, we're going to have an opening as a tech manager position for the Sabres. And when I was at ESPN and we would do games when ESPN3 first started, mm-hmm. okay? ESPN3 was called ESPN360. I would go in to do a game, let's say at Boston College, okay? And to tell you the truth, I, I had to wear five hats. I started off being the tech manager because I had to make sure all the cameras knew where they were going, all the cable routes that were going to have to happen. And then I would go in the truck and I would be the AP. So I would be the graphics producer and help the graphics person build graphics because they didn't have a graphics person to help them do that. It was just one graphics person. And then during the show, I would produce, I direct, and I would AD, you know, count us in and out of the breaks. Mm-hmm. So I spent a whole three seasons working for ESPN Freelance doing technically all five positions. So I had some experience tech managing and putting together surveys and stuff like that. So when she said it, I was like, sure, I wouldn't mind doing that at all. And I had filled in a couple of times directing games for the Sabres mm-hmm. and was able to do so again this year, which was great. Uh, but it was good in the aspect that it kind of got me back into full Sabres game day mode. So now I I've previously worked with those members of the crew before, um, but now I'm really back working with them a lot because basically it's the, it's the Buffalo native crew. And that crew had worked games for us at Empire 
from 1995 all the way through 2005. So mm -hmm. I knew that crew really, really well and worked with them an awful lot. And they're a fabulous crew. They do a great job. But now I get to work with them more often, which is great. So it's kind of like seeing old friends once again. So it's it's a good thing. And uh, it's it's been also nice that uh, for that stretch with ESPN from 2004 to 2021, basically it was all travel-based. I mean, I'd be always on the road. I rarely ever had a home game. Or now, a decent amount of stuff that I'm doing is actually right here in Buffalo. So that's nice. Not as much travel, which is good. Uh, it's nice to do things at home. Well, and so my last two questions, uh, the first one is, so you talked about how the, the, the packaging um, with Rush and with LTN, right? Yep. You, you are to provide the everything else. They're going to provide you the talent. They're going to give you the look, but everything else comes from, from you as the, the producer and the director. Now, yep. does, is that a team that you carry with you like that? You have your team already and that's where you're going to, you're going to go, or does the team change? Because like you said about the Buffalo thing is those guys yeah. you worked with a lot right. and then you didn't get to right. work with them as much, but they're, they're the Buffalo native guys. So right. Right. is that how that works for you? Do you have a group that you call up and that's, that's your crew? Uh, kind of yes and no. I would say the, in, in the business, they have the above the line positions. Okay. So above the line basically is your producer, your director, your AP, which is your graphics and your AD, okay? So that's technically kind of like your above the line people, okay? So for LTN, when I work with them, uh, for college football, I got to work pretty much with the same director all the time, which was great because mm -hmm. you develop a rapport with that director. And I got to work with the same tech manager for the most part, which was great, again, because you develop a rapport with that, with that tech manager. The graphics, it pretty much was split between two people. But to answer your question for LTN, pretty much those five positions, yeah, we were pretty much a team for college football season. I got to work with them for the most part, and that was good because, you know, you know what they like and you can develop things to their strengths. And then they can tell you, you know, I didn't like this. And you communicate back and forth. So, you know, you get a better product out of it that way, mm -hmm. which is good. Uh, and to tell you the truth, for uh, for Rush, usually if I'm if I'm in the producer's chair, I'm usually working with the same director, Mark Ballard, who's out of Syracuse. And a lot of the times, I will work events that are kind of Syracuse based. So like Colgate, because they have the Patriot League, I'll do Colgate, which is great. Uh, and so I get to work with the Syracuse crew, which I know extremely well. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with on many events. So. Uh, yeah, I would say for the most parts, yes, yes, I get to work with a lot of the same people, and that certainly helps, and that and that creates such a big positive. And uh, another packager I work for, CVM, uh, I get to do Ultimate with them, and I've done Ultimate with them for over ten years, and mm -hmm. it's the same exact people that I get to work with. Ron Vandermolen, who owns it, does a great job. And uh, he's just, we always have the same bunch of people and just creates great success. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. And then lastly, you've given a lot of pointers throughout this episode. If you could give a synopsis to, so you talked to the freshmen 
uh, at the beginning of the show about, you know, get involved and get, get the experiences, but make sure you go to class as well and do what you got to do. Now yep. let's go to the other side. You got your prospective seniors and, and they're maybe they're coming in late or maybe they're getting ready to apply to jobs and whatnot. What is the best advice that you could give to, to get into the industry and to be successful in the industry? I'll tell you the truth in our industry. I would say take what you can get starting out because don't think you're going to, if you want to be a producer, director, even an announcer, don't think that you're definitely going to start off in the position that you want. Um, start with anything that you can get because once you're in the field and once you have experience and once you do a good job, you will get calls again, okay? That's basically the way this field works is you need to get the experience, you need to get in so they know what you can do. Once they know that you can do the job, you get called again, which is great. And that's the way it should be. And that's mm -hmm. the way it is. So uh, don't think that you're going to start off exactly doing what you want. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you won't get there. Okay. Most directors, I would say, started out as camera people. And okay. that makes sense. Okay. Because uh, when I worked at Adelphi, I ran game camp. So the directors work with the camera people. So you have to make sure that you get the best that you can out of the camera people because they're the ones that are going to make you look good. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a whole lot of sense. A lot of producers, and again, I did this as well, start with that graphics background. Okay, start with the statistical background. You know, mm -hmm. the very first thing that I did out of high school is I did stats, but that stats led me to a graphics position. Okay, and that graphics position that I showed that I could coordinate all the graphics put me in a producer's position. Okay, so just because you start somewhere doesn't mean you're not going to get to where you want to go. Okay. There's, there's levels to get there. And it's kind of like anything else, but it's a little bit different in our field. You know, when somebody says, well, what are you doing today? Well, I'm just carrying cable. Yeah, but you know what? If you, Even if you're just carrying cable on one of our shows, you're working with a camera person. And you're and there. That camera person's working with the director, okay? Mm -hmm. So let's say you're just your third show in, Okay. And that camera person gets sick during the game. Well, guess who's going to run that camera? You're going to run that camera, okay? And let's say you do a really good job running that camera. That director's going to say, hey, you know what? That person did a really good job on running that camera. Let's get that person on camera again, okay? So it's, it's all about making the most of your opportunities, mm -hmm. but you have to create getting your opportunities and sometimes creating getting that opportunity isn't exactly starting out in the position that you want makes sense makes sense to me i i lied there's one more question because i gotta i gotta know so producer director which one is your is your favorite okay so i would say that i absolutely and i'm being a little bit lazy in saying this but directing is a little bit less work than producing it's I shouldn't say it's a, it's a lot less work than producing. <laughs> um, you're really producing for a solid eight days going into that game. So, I mean, if you if you gave me my druthers, I'm going to say directing just because it's less work. 
Um, actually, during the game, I would say directing as well, because you get to decide what the viewer sees, okay? It's a really big responsibility to decide what the viewer sees. Uh, and you can have a lot of fun with it. And most of the time you get to work with some really great camera people that just make you look really good. And it's, it's the camera people that, that, that help, uh, you know, it's, and, and in working with young camera people as well, because I, I'll still do stuff for Niagara mm -hmm. and I'll still get to work with students. Uh, and, and they run cameras now that are smaller than ever. I mean, I've got some people running camera, they put it in their lap because it's so small, it's easier for them to run camera than it is to put it on their shoulder. And, and I've had people mock them out profusely for doing that because it's not the way you normally run a camera. Well, I don't care how you do it. I only care if you're able to execute it. If you're able mm -hmm. to execute it, execute it the easiest way that you can. That's fine by me. As long as you're still getting the shots, that's fine. So uh, it's, it's great that I'm able to work with still young students, which is great. It, it keeps you young. It still keeps you focused because they're going to make mistakes. You need to show them what mistakes they're making so they help themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's also great to work with, you know, just fabulous veteran people that you've worked with for years that you know are going to come through for you. And it makes your job easier and you can have fun with it. Well, we've come to that point. I wanted to say, Dave, thank you very much for, for taking time out to do the show with us. And thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you that don't know and you made it this far, you can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. It's at Dingo Talk. You can find us on Twitter at Dingo Talk, Instagram, Dingo underscore talk, and TikTok, Dingo Talk. Um, but I am Carla Guadagnino. This has been Dingo Talk. Dave Tasca, uh, freelance producer and director with ESPN, CBS, and Bu the Buffalo Sabres, the Buffalo Bison. I don't want to miss anybody, but there's a long list of uh, cover it in the beginning. Go back if you missed a couple of things. But uh, thank you very much, and we will see you next week, Chuckleheads. <laughs>